0: What kind of questions do you think we're going to get here? You think they're going to be like life advice, stock advice, or more like, you know, boxers or briefs kind of questions? Um... Frequently Asked Questions from Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. I am Stephen Dubner here with my Freakonomics friend and co-author Steve Levitt. Now, Levitt, this is the first time we're doing this. It's called Frequently asked questions. These are questions that the readers of our Free Economics blog and
1: people who l- listen to this podcast have sent in. What kind of questions do you think we're going to get here? I think they're going to be a mix of economic questions that we have no way to answer, like <laughs> is the stock market going to go up and down or when's the recession going to end? And mostly what people want us to do is to, is to figure out puzzles. And, and, and that's good because that's, that's the only thing we actually are any good at. All right. So you got some coffee there? You got your muffin? You ready to go? I got some water. <laughs> Hi, my name's Tom. I'm from Boston. I'm a big fan of the books. Uh, my question is, uh, I was wondering if you or others have looked at different economic groups or people and see if they have economic personalities and uh, if these fit in with exi- existing stereotypes. And uh, what I mean by that is, like, are, are Americans enthusiastic go-getters Bounce back from things. Uh, Germans reserve pragmatists. Uh, who are the romantics, the gamblers, the cynics? Um, can you can you see this at a at an economics level? Um, that's my question. Keep up the great work, guys.
0: Bye. So that's a that's a pretty neat question. You have any answers to it?
1: Well, yeah, I I know less about nationalities and whether there are different personalities. But I will tell you one thing which I have seen overwhelmingly, and that is that exposure to traumatic macroeconomic events forever scars people. And I think anyone who's known someone who lived through the Great Depression absolutely changed that generation uh, in a couple of ways. Number one, it just made them very cautious and, and very likely to save. It also is is ironically... With the Great Depression was an incredible instigator to the field of economics, not just because of the trauma and the need to study it, but it turned out that some of the most brilliant people in the world— Having lived through the Great Depression, decided that that's what they t- should devote their life to studying economics. So that the cohort that, that was a child in the Great Depression turned out to be this unbelievable cohort of economists, far greater than any cohort since. I think I think there's been a real decline in the quality of the kind of people going to economics, precisely because there hasn't been the sort of traumatic economic event that leads the greatest people to to go do it. Now, one other thing that uh, might be worth saying. The question asked about economic identities, but I, I'm always hesitant to attribute differences, say, across countries, to to the people who inhabit those countries as opposed to the incentives and the institutions that's, that's that That's a exist. good point, yeah. yeah. So, so, for instance, you think about a place like like uh, Spain, which is you know Italy, which is very high unemployment, and you might say, well, that's because people are lazy or you might say it's because they're incredibly high replacement rates so that if you go become unemployed, you're, you're paid almost as much as if you work or you know they have rules in place so that if it's impossible to fire people, then it turns out that employers don't want to hire a lot of people either because they know that the costs of hiring become much, much higher. So you know I, I think if you if you take uh, you know you take some Germans, and you bring them to the U.S., and you let a couple generations pass, their kids look a whole lot like Americans that have been here forever. So I I think there's probably less that's different about people and more that's different about places. Here's a question from a reader named QZ. He or she asks, what
0: is the one piece of advice you would give to all of us in our 20s entering this post-2008
1: economy? So the one piece of advice I always give to my students and high school kids, basically anyone who's just getting started, is I give them a a two-pronged piece of advice. First, I tell them, find something to do in life that you love, that, that uh, there's no substitute for finding a career that you think is fun, that you want to get up in the morning and there's nothing else you'd rather do than whatever career you pursue. But the second piece of advice I always give them is make sure that whatever you love doing is something that other people don't love to do. The worst thing in the world is to find some kind of job that everybody wants to do, like be a rock star. Stephen, you've tried to be a rock star. It's hard work. Uh, being a movie star, uh, you have to find something that is idiosyncratically Uh, something that you love, whereas everyone else despises it. So if your dream is to be a garbage man, for instance, you're guaranteed to have success in life because very few people will share that dream. To a certain extent, being an economist has a little bit of that flavor. There aren't many kids who sit around dreaming of being economists. And so I think that uh, in in that regard, I was very lucky to find something that I loved and that no one else really loved uh, the way that I did. All
0: right, so Levitt, here's one that's uh, near to your heart. This is actually something we've written about. Part of this question, at least, um, a reader named Max writes: Does voting involve some self-deception that your one vote makes a difference, especially when the race isn't even close?
1: Nobody in their right mind votes because they think they're going to affect the outcome of, of an election. Uh, if you look over the last hundred years of, say, elections for the U.S. House of Representatives, I think there's been maybe one election that was decided by votes, and and in the modern era. Uh, elections that are close are always decided by the courts. There's always litigation. Look at what happened with um, with Bush against Gore. So that there's really in no meaningful way can you say that your vote will ever decide an election. That the reasons for voting have to be something very different. It's fun. Your wife will love you more if you go do it. Uh, it makes you, you know, feel like a proud American. But but never should anyone delude themselves into thinking that the vote they cast will ever decide an election.
0: Now, here's part two of the voting question. Do you ever feel like voting is not worth the hassle and that the time – this is the part that particularly interests me – that the time spent researching the issues to make an informed decision could be better spent on just about anything else that benefits you or your community?
1: Because I think that, honestly, about like why people consume a lot of media. Well, maybe you seem smarter around your friends if you can talk about the issues in the newspaper. Um, Again, it's, it's not like any of us, most of us can have any effect on what goes on in, in the world around us. Uh, but being knowledgeable, we can teach our, our kids things. Um, you know, but not everyone, I think, reads hard and, and learns a lot about the issues because the, the studies that have looked at, say, the order they put the names on the ballot, uh, show that if your name is on the ballot first, you get a lot more votes than second, which suggests that it's not all, uh, careful, uh, appraisal of the, of, of the, um, of the issues, and I also quiz my students. I ask my students, my college students, who their representative is in the U.S. House of Representatives, and basically nobody knows. Uh, nobody knows who their their representative is. I, I actually don't even know who my representative <laughs> is in the House of Representatives for sure. Uh, the last thing I know is for sure is that when I lived in in Cambridge and in, in Somerville in Massachusetts for a long time. And the thing that struck me, I did actually vote a few times when I was there, although I'm not a big voter. And um, the thing that struck me was that there were always about 14 Kennedys on the ballot. And one time I actually went to the trouble to figure out how many of them were actually part of the Kennedy family. And as far as I know, only two out of the 12 or the 14 were actually Kennedys. It's just that everyone who's got the name Kennedy in Massachusetts thinks that they can run for election because who knows, you know, they might be a Kennedy. We might as well vote for them. They're a Kennedy. Now, did any of these Kennedys change their name to Kennedy or did you not find that out? Oh, great question. Uh, certainly that would be the logical next step. <laughs> Just about anything you would do with your time would be more productive than voting. I mean, certainly you could actually change something. You could say pick up, pick up trash along the street or you could volunteer in anything. I, I think when, when, when the alternative is voting and voting has, in my view, essentially zero value to the community, more or less anything you do that isn't destructive would be a good alternative. So we should have national don't get out the vote day if, Le- if Levitt
0: were running the world. Don't spend any time voting and take your time that you're you're spending thinking about voting and all the media bandwidth that's consumed with shouting about voting and just
1: actually do something more productive. Well, I think that's going too far because it's not that we don't want anyone to vote because we need somebody to vote because, you know, we like we like democracy. We, we like uh, elections. It's just that we don't need everybody to vote that that. Uh, look when they do the, the Gallup poll to try and figure out who's going to win the election. They only have to ask about 1,000 people to have a pretty good idea who's going to win the election. So if we had just you know a few thousand carefully chosen people voting, we could get a lot of the same benefit we get from having uh, 50 or 100 million people voting. Um, and the rest of the people could pick up trash. And, it would, and that would probably make our country a better place. So people
0: are always complaining about the low voter turnout rate in this country, somewhere around 50, 55 percent, let's
1: say, for a presidential election. Do you think that's low? Well, it depends how you look at it. Uh, Economists would predict that almost nobody would vote. So in that regard, 50% is quite high. On the other hand, compared to some other countries, especially the countries where they more or less mandate that you vote, uh, it's it's pretty low. But I think ultimately it comes down to – If you're worried about the people who do show up, and you might say, well, geez, the people who show up are the ones who have the lowest value on their time and the ones who don't understand that voting can have no benefit. So maybe they're not the smartest ones who are uh, going on voting. Then you might worry about low voter turnout because you didn't like the composition of who votes. But other than that, uh, I think that uh, that one of the joys of a democracy is that people get to make their own choices. And uh, one of the choices they get to make is whether or not they think it's worth voting. (laughs)
0: Coming up, a question about my sordid past as a rock and roll accordionist. Plus, Levitt gives some priceless free economics dating advice, and the easiest question we'll ever get: Who's smarter, Levitt or me?
1: From American Public Media and WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. So uh, Jenny Dilworth writes, I just want to know if Stephen still plays the accordion. Stephen, you ever play the accordion? Uh, I used to play a lot of
0: accordion in my little rock band, but uh, the short answer is no. I don't really play that much music anymore, which is a great sadness, Um because i was in this band and it was great fun and i kind of went cold turkey i still do have the accordion though. i'm pretty sure it is the only accordion in the world uh that is fitted with heavy duty automobile safety belts as the straps to actually hold it on because one of the other guys in my band uh jeffrey foster jeffrey's dad had a, a store in winston salem north carolina that was a hunting fishing auto muffler and reupholstery store and uh, he, he uh, my my accordion was my straps were falling apart, so he reupholstered it with um, uh, safety belts, which was um, great. How um how important was the accordion to your band's success? You know, it was kind of so I was the guy who uh, played a bunch of different instruments. So I grew up playing piano, and then in college, I saw these guys would sit around at, at parties playing uh, acoustic guitar really badly, and I couldn't play guitar, and they were these guys would be surrounded by girls. I thought, oh, my God. If you can play guitar that badly and be surrounded by girls, I should learn to play guitar because I'm already a musician, so I did. So then I played some guitar and then I played some accordion and some uh, like lap steel. So we were kind of like – I liked all those sounds that the Rolling Stones had on Exile on Main Street and that the band and Bob Dylan had. So like very noisy guitars mixed with with, uh, jacked up acoustic instruments
1: and so the accordion is a good – acoustic instrument to jack up because it's an awesome instrument did you find the accordion had the magical effect on women that the acoustic guitar had it had exactly the opposite effect on women that the the acoustic guitar had what about older the older polka set i think you probably could have made some headway there
0: well it's interesting i tell you the accordion makes you look kind of brawny or, or at least you know like you have shoulders which i don't really have many shoulders i mean i have two shoulders but they're narrow but you look like you're really, you look like a linebacker when you're wearing an accordion. So I, my advice to young people out there would be to uh, take up an unusual musical instrument because, you know, if you can, if you can get in with the bassoon or the accordion or the French horn even, you know, you, you're going to just really dominate your space is my feeling. All right. So Leva, a reader named Nick writes, uh, this is a question I, I think you're going to love. Um, He writes, I'm a young gay man. I'm no supermodel, but I'm attractive enough. Um, He did not send a picture. I have a great future career ahead of me. I'm currently in a top law school on scholarship and I want to pursue a job in public service or nonprofit management. My friends think I'm funny, kind and interesting,
1: if perhaps not as humble as he might be. So why can't I get a date? So I I have no idea why Nick cannot get a date, but I I will tell you this. As I look back on my life, one of the greatest regrets I have is that I spent my youth thinking that I could get a date when I when I never could get a date. And if I only had perfect foresight, I would have realized that um, if you can actually have some success in life— then you can get dates once you have success. So so this fellow Nick, he says he's on a track to be successful. He's not yet successful, but will be successful. My advice would be while you're waiting to be successful, spend your time, invest your time in becoming successful and worry about dates once you are successful because it'd be so much easier to get dates once you achieve success. You're good. Now, see, that was some practical advice. I think that was worth something. Well, that was drawn from my own personal experience. My only good practical advice is the experience of my own mistakes. A reader named Andrew writes: Who is smarter, Levitt or
0: Dubner? Now, I am smart enough to know the answer to that, um, but Levitt, I, I, I'm going to let you take it.
1: Well, I think smart has many dimensions, and Dubner, <laughs> you are. Uh, so, if we had an IQ test, I don't know. Oh, you would I, dust. I might, I might you would nip you a little bit an on IQ test. IQ maybe. I mean, people don't know this, but when I met Dubner, he knew nothing about economics, but he really started to to, to think about economics a lot, work on it. And, and I, I would say you're, you're now an honorary economist. I mean, when we get together with economists. You say smart things. People treat you like you're, like you're a, a, a real member of the club. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think, uh. I, look, I don't mean to
0: downgrade my, I am of above average intelligence. I'm going to say that, but you're, you're fairly legitimately smart. That does it, our first installment of Frequently Asked Questions. I hope you'll agree that it was fairly legitimately worth your time. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. There were way more than we could get to, this time at least. Freakonomics Radio is a co-production of WNYC, American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you will get the next episode in your sleep. You can find more audio at FreakonomicsRadio.com. And as always, if you want to read more about the hidden side of everything, please visit our blog at Freakonomics.com.